From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Dean Mackin. Dean Mackin. This is the Dean Mackin Show on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Greetings. It's actually Lembidopic here. Four minutes past seven in the UK. Four minutes past six in Sydney and in Melbourne. How are you doing? Good to see you again. Uh, in this show today, we're going to be talking to a former Friends of the Earth activist who's in Prague. I'm going to challenge him to justify the climate emergency. I believe it's snowing where he is at the moment, as it normally does at this time of year. We'll have some fun with him. Uh, we'll be talking to Michael Beek about the first transatlantic flight uh, of a large commercial airliner on 100% biofuel. Sounds good, maybe. Well, what is biofuel? Uh, where's it come from? Is it affordable? Is it the future? And can it save the planet? Michael Beek, who is a pilot and a professional in the transport industry, uh, will be joining us about that. And then we speak with Daniel Welsh. Now, she's a very interesting person. She works for Harvest for Hope. She's a charity worker. And she's going to talk about how the relationship between a church-based uh, charity can actually make a practical difference in the world. Uh, the charity she works within, called Oasis, reaches far beyond the United Kingdom. They've got thousands of staff all over the world. But how does that work exactly? Are they a non-governmental organization? Do they promote religion in some sneaky way when they're doing this work? Uh, and does this mean that the governments are failing in their responsibilities? And that's why church and other charities have to step in. All of that with me in this hour. Of course, we've got Gemma Cooper coming up in a minute or two as well with her unique take on the news and her views uh, about those from around the world. I just want to cover a couple of interesting stories which have come up. Uh, first of all, it looks like, hmm, how shall I put it? Donald Trump has some competition. <laughs> Apparently, uh, one of the major donors uh, in the United States is challenging or, or encouraging somebody else to stand against him. Uh, that's a sideshow, which we'll come on to maybe a little bit later on. The big story is, can anyone beat Donald Trump? Uh, it seems that whoever tries to become the Republican candidate in the United States is faced with the monolithic performance of Donald Trump and his uh, pretty impressive uh, entrenchment in the organization as a whole. Do you think anyone else can beat Donald Trump? Uh, are there any contenders that you'd support? DeSantis is a chap who's often mentioned. And could Donald Trump do this from prison if he gets arrested and put away? Apparently, there's no legal obligation for him to be outside prison. And at least uh, that means you can always find him. Uh, that's Donald Trump. And there's another story also from the United States. And this is about a, a rather big story, a rather big leak. Apparently, there were files uh, released by Whistleblower and reported by Schellenberger, who's often involved in these things. And they reveal extensive activities which uh, go far beyond combating uh, COVID misinformation to include wider digital censorship effects uh, with uh, pretty deep ties to the FBI. Now, I've just come across a story this morning, but it does look like these fi files expose pretty extensive infiltration, creation of fake personas, the use of what's called burner phones, phones which you don't keep, you just use them for a purpose and then get rid of them again. And uh, marketing executives transitioning from corporate brand management to manipulating perceptions for nation states' policies and political parties. Now, if we get time, we'll go into that further. But this does look like a rather substantial uh, story. Uh, essentially, it 
does seem that uh, there's an awful lot. It's not surprising to me, but there seems to be a lot of <laughs> evidence uh, that this anti-disinformation uh, process is a partisan con, really. Uh, more on that uh, if we get time as well. Uh, just look up the CTIL files if you want to explore that for yourself. If you want to be involved in the conversation, go to tntradio.live. You'll find us in the chat. Also, you'll find phone numbers there if you want to get involved as well. All of that with me, Lembitopic, in this hour on TNT Radio. The latest headlines waiting for you. I follow the news pretty much throughout the day. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Uh, Greetings, Gemma Cooper. Good morning to you. How are you doing? Yes, very well here in the UK. Lembert this morning, yeah, doing well. I find it extraordinary. I touched on this actually with Dean Mackin in the last hour is uh, some of the stuff coming out of the COVID inquiry now. We um, heard from Michael Gove yesterday. Uh, he he took the stand, if, if you want to call it a stand. And I, I briefly mentioned it in the last hour, but it's worth chatting with you about because he raised the origins of the uh, uh, so-called virus, if you believe in viruses, uh, at the inquiry yesterday. So it's now an official testimony. And he said, you know, we have to look into the fact that this virus was uh, man-made eight miles outside of Wuhan. And the lead counsel of the inquiry, when suddenly somebody brings some decent information to the table, slapped him down and said, Mr. Gove, you know, this is not helpful. It's a very divisive issue and we're not going to go there. But at last, at least somebody's bringing something to the inquiry rather than a pantomime um, and some Boris Johnson tittle-tattle from number 10, you know, which is what it was basically turning into, making us think that all our politicians were completely incompetent, which I think is part of a wider agenda leading towards a one world government. But at least yesterday, somebody did bring that piece of information to the table, which three and a half years ago, if you even suggested anything like that, you were an absolutely insane, Tim for hat wearing nutter, don't be ridiculous. What conspiracy theory one day becomes conspiracy facts, i.e. the truth a few years later. So, you know, it's a shame that the lead counsel slapped him down because it's the those are the questions that the inquiry needs to be looking at. Where did this come from? What about the use of the PCR test, which, you know, involved the whole of the planet going into global lockdown, a test that wasn't fit for purpose? But, you know, it, it's it's it, at least it's on testimony now. At least something decent came out of that inquiry yesterday here in the UK. Well, two things came out of it. I saw this and it really was quite a bombshell because until now you haven't been allowed to say anything suggesting uh, that kind of origin. Uh, but the other thing that we saw was that the lead council is simply in cahoots with the whole process because it's comfortable the questions they're asking. The answers are generally comfortable, which means slam somebody else and blame somebody else uh, who uh, includes everyone up to the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, And yet, when you get to the real uncomfortable stuff, the lead council says, no, 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 let's not go there. Let's just stay in the comfort zone so that we can finish this inquiry and sign it off. That's what seems to be going on in my view, Jenny, Jenna. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's not go there. Let's not ask those difficult questions. I'm amazed nobody's mentioned the PCR test. I can't I can't even get my head around it. And I'm amazed nobody's mentioned that the figures, you know, died after testing positive for died with. You know, I've said it before on this show. It's not even the story I want to talk about, but I, we need to talk about this as a UK breakfast show here in, on TNT Radio. But, you know, it, I've always alluded to the, the the lovely joke made by the comedian Alistair Williams, who was cancelled too. You know, COVID was the most caring virus, wasn't he? If you fell off a ladder, COVID was with you. Got run over by a bus, COVID was with you. He's so caring, isn't he? He was with you everywhere. But nobody's looking at that. The manipulated yeah. death figures. These these are the questions. Basic, journalistic yeah 
questions and you're quite right it's all a cahoots cover up lead councils in it with them nobody wants to lose their job you know let's all just play the game it's an absolute disgrace what's also a disgrace is the story i wanted to bring to the table in this second hour which is about the continued decimation of the national health service uh, we talked earlier in the week about how delays and lack of cash are leading to deaths. You know, we've got this massive waiting list for operations here in the UK of 8 million people. Um, there's now a study out today, a big study, which has been published in the British Medical Journal. And that's saying, unsurprisingly, that the state of a, a GP, general doctor's appointments here, your local doctor appointments, the fact they're now all being done nearly over the phone or online uh, means that doctors are misdiagnosing patients and it's leading to tragic deaths um, and significant serious harms because you just simply cannot diagnose on a Zoom call <laughs> serious illnesses. You know, if somebody presents with a, a mysterious rash or a lump or, you know, you can't really get to the nuts and bolts of it online and especially not on the phone, but that's the way the National Health Service is going. Also, this report out today, it's, this is a terrible fact. It says distracted doctors receptionists are, are being found to be res directly responsible for deaths after failing to call patients back. Now, if you cast your mind back three and a half years, one death from COVID was a death too many. You know, one death. We must all prevent and even one death from this deadly virus. You know, and you must all stay at home. And this is a direct result of the last three and a half years because um, GP appointments fell to less than half during the scamdemic because everybody was told, don't go and see your GP. Well, they want to carry this on now and they care so much about us, our, our, our government, that they're, they're saying everything's online now. So they clearly don't care about preserving life or, or helping people who have serious conditions. It's the exact opposite. It's an inversion that we're looking at this morning. And the patient campaign groups are saying that this study, which is out today, is the tip of a huge iceberg and the potential for tragic misdiagnosis because of the limitations of technology are huge. And we don't know how many people have already died as a result of online appointments, which are a direct result of the last three and a half years. So the inversion of like one death from COVID is too much, but people are dying in their droves now because of this relentless push to tech and a, a complete callous disregard for the health of vulnerable people in this country. A, a vulnerable friend of mine uh, who earlier on this year was, to be blunt, having suicidal tendencies. I encouraged her to go to the doctor's surgery, uh, not far from where I'm sitting, actually. She eventually went in and they said, is it urgent? She went, I think so. And they said, well, you just have to go online and make an appointment and come back. And she went, it's really important I speak to somebody. And they said, you'll have to go online. And she left and she hasn't been back. And then she got some counselling uh, because she took time off work because she was so depressed. And I don't understand how we've got to a situation where a receptionist can turn away somebody who could have taken their own life, life at that point uh, on the basis of filling in an online form. Uh, something's going desperately wrong in our health service, uh, Gemma. Well, I think it's by design. I mean, if you told me four years ago before this whole madness kicked off that this is what we'd be talking about, this is what we'd be looking at, the state of how the National Health Service is caring for people. I mean, your friend would have been one of those case studies, wouldn't she? You know, a, a, a receptionist sending her away. She would have been one of those statistics. I mean, there's just this utter 
inhumanity of the National Health Service and some people that work there. I often have said on this show, if I was ill now, the last place I'd want to be is in a hospital because I think some of the people, not all, some of the people in the NHS are deeply caring and compassionate, but there's also a very cold side to the NHS now, as your story just illustrates. But it's the direct contrast with, you know, one death is a death too many from this deadly virus, which may or may not be man-made, um, to, oh, we're suicidal, or just go away because that's that's a different type of death. We don't, we don't, we're not bothered about those type of deaths, just COVID deaths, you know. It's just an awful state of the world we're in. And, you know, who wants to make an appointment online to discuss very vulnerable things? And and you know, you, it's just awful. It's just awful. In fact, I was talking uh, to my taxi driver about this yesterday, and he was bemoaning the fact that you can't see your doctor, and his 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 partner's got a very severe chest infection. She can't get into the doctor. If that was three and a half years ago, and she was coughing, they'd be like, "Right, that's it. In, you know, her on a ventilator." It's just the co contrast with where we've been and where we are now. The end result is human suffering again. Yeah, I, I feel that. The, there are some great people in the NHS and there's no doubt the NHS saved my life a number of times, uh, probably three. And uh, my mother's life, they kept her alive probably 15 years longer than she would have lived otherwise. But I feel a sense of burnout. And I think that the whole management system absolutely, is absolutely desperate. All these middle managers who are there. Uh, I, even before I was very involved in politics, I could see the benefit of uh, having a system which is primarily... Uh, practitioner-led, not management-led. But we've now got this whole hodgepodge of both. And as you say, you get the political interventions like the COVID uh, thing, where everybody has to drop all drop tools, do the COVID thing, and let people die of cancer, which was undiagnosed because you couldn't get the diagnosis because of COVID. And you know as well as I do, Gemma, that the death rates seem to be increased for those who took jabs almost in proportion to the number of jabs you got. Something very wrong, very wrong here. Once I, I ask this rhetorically now because I know that neither of us can fix it, but what would be the solution? What would you do to change it? Because neither the Conservatives mm -hmm. nor the leading opposition party in the UK seem to have the slightest intention of challenging what you've just said. No, in fact, they're encouraging it because for them, it's all about efficiency. And it just shows to me, if ever you think that our politicians care about us, Forget it. This story this morning, you know, that the, the, the online and, and, and doctor's receptionists not calling back and people dying as a result. Doctor's receptionists sending people away who may or may not commit suicide. You know, they do not care. So I think um, taking back health into your own hands, looking at a diet and exercise, I think, and staying positive, that's the biggest thing as an act of rebellion you can do against the system. Don't rely on your doctors. Don't rely on pharma. Look at yourself. Look at your life stay strong and healthy into your old age, then you can opt out personally. You don't need them. That would be my way of dealing with it. That is my way well, of dealing with it. In other words, um, uh, do your own health service, basically. <laughs> it's just good advice. <laughs> Look after yourself, number one. <laughs> and then an extremist maybe gamble with the NHS. Uh, as I say, I don't want to rubbish the whole of the NHS. There's some great people there, but it does seem to me that we are in a difficult situation now. And it's likely to continue in the same vein uh yes yes when did you when did you last go to see a doctor or go to the to, to a hospital Gemma if ever god I <laughs> when was that the last dealing okay. I had with any doctors was when my mum died that was when the last that was five years ago now 
Yeah, I've been there a few times. Uh, I I spent a lot of time with my mother. She was dying, and they told me they were honest. They said she's probably not going to make it, and the, the the palliative care was good. But uh, I won't go into my my personal biographical issues there. Uh, Gemma, thanks again. Another salutary warning of where this country is heading. Uh, what's your view? What's your experience? Go to tntradio.life. Go to the chat, or you can phone up if you want. You'll find those numbers uh, on the site as well. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about the first transatlantic commercial flight on 100% biofuel, virtue signaling, or something to celebrate. We'll find out with our next guest. That's all with me, Lembertopic, here on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. The Lights is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk CO2 sustains all life on Earth, but now it's in long-term decline. We face the return of an ice age. We mandate that the truth be told. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Greetings, it's 22 minutes, 22 minutes past seven in the morning uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, 22 minutes past six in Sydney and Melbourne, a little bit earlier in Perth, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me, Lembotopic, here on the Lembotopic Show on TNT Radio. If you want to get involved, go to the chat uh, and you can make your comments there. Uh, I want to talk next about uh, a rather interesting flight, a Virgin Atlantic took a great big giant, I think it was Boeing 787, huge plane, uh, and flew it all the way to America on biofuels. What are biofuels? Are they the savior of our future? Are they even necessary? Are they affordable? And where do they come from? Joining me now is pilot and uh, a transport expert, uh, Michael Beek in the United Kingdom. Michael, good morning. Good Thanks for joining us. Now, you're a pilot. Let's start with what biofuel for an airplane actually is. Where's it come from and what's it made of? Well, it's given the abbreviation SAF, Sustainable Air Fuels, and the aviation industry has already declared that it won't take its biomass from food or crop sources. So it's going to have to take its biomass from other areas. And since they've been talking about biofuels for the aviation industry, I mean, the International Air Transport Association 
currently states that approximately today 370,000 flights have taken place using some form of sustainable aviation fuel. So yesterday's flight was nothing uh, different than what 370,000 previous flights have seen. But the industry faces a big problem because mandated in several uh, different walks to net zero 2030 and 2050 uh, are certain targets for a percentage of sustainable air fuel. And at the moment, the aviation industry struggles to even meet 1% of fuel used um, from sustainable means. And it's got quite aggressive targets to get to 10% of fuel in 2030 and even more than that in 2050. So on one hand, we've got the good things that the sustainable fuel might deliver, which, which could be a cleaner fuel source. But on the other hand, we've got the realities of actually uh, refining and distributing that fuel to the aviation world. If if you can't grow it by this self-denying ordinance uh, and you have to find it in other ways, how sustainable is it? Because I imagine it takes energy to create biofuels. Yes, and the questions that should be asked is what is the net effect of creating and distributing these fuels? But then in place of kerosene in jet engines, what is the total emissions output? You know, is it worse for nitrous oxide emissions, for example? So this whole sort of net benefit analysis, um, the data just isn't there for us mere mortals to find and interrogate. Uh, so there is a bit of a dark art going on here. Uh, I spoke to biofuels expert in anticipation of the chat with you yesterday. And he said, uh, aside from anything else, governments really aren't that serious about it because there was a, a big biofuel business in the north of England which shut down. And as such, what we saw Virgin Atlantic doing may look noble, but it's it's rather virtue signaling. It's, it's, it's not serious because you couldn't run uh, even British aviation on 100% biofuel. Is that right? Well, I'm not sure about the, the serious claim. Yeah, I've read that the UK government uh, this November has just um, started nine projects, each in total going to receive uh, $53 million to help the research in sustainable air fuel for the aviation industry. Now, a lot of these uh, corporation uh, leaders would like us to believe they're the profits of the greenwashing and that may be true, uh, but with that amount of investment in projects going on, then I think you have to be careful how you spell the word profit. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, these biofuels, do they do the same job as kerosene? Well, for aviation, we've got jet engines, which are quite flexible in terms of the fuel that they will combust on. And then we've got the whole sort of light aviation industry using conventional piston engines. So the sustainable air fuels could potentially work for the jet engine segment, but the piston engine continues to burn 100 octane low lead. Um, so it's questionable what solution is, is in the pipeline for different forms of aviation. The uh, commercial uh, sector uh, has sought, apparently, to accommodate the sustainable agenda. But in real terms, 
many of the environmentalists claim that we shouldn't fly at all. That strikes me as rather challenging for an island nation like the United Kingdom or an island continent such as Australia. Is there any scenario in which you can see the termination of aviation as as credible? Well, if you look at plans for 2030 and 2050 to reach net zero, then in terms of aviation, they know that they are going to have to keep the aviation industry running on jet or kerosene, conventionally kerosene burning engines. The transition to electric motors for aviation just isn't going to happen in the in the short term in the next few decades so there has to be uh, some form of uh, progression in terms of emissions reduction and sustainable fuels is their answer to that but what you're talking about there is the ideology of how it's seen by the average person and if we consider things like you know, drink driving and speeding, these have become socially unacceptable and quite rightly so. But together with private cars and motorcycles and other forms of transport, I think what they want is for those recreational forms of transportation to be seen as socially unacceptable as uh, previous things that I mentioned uh, obviously are Mm. socially unacceptable. So, yeah, we we could find ourselves questioning uh, going on, flights uh, across the world for recreational purposes and and the question needs to be asked is that is that right uh the returning again to the virgin atlantic experience do they have the intention of continuing with this or is it just a one-off flight you may not know this but uh do you have any insight well there is knowledge about whether mm, sorry go on well there is the mandate for a certain percentage of sustainable fuels um in in aviation to be used and there are already around the world about five airports that do uh, use a a considerable amount of sustainable fuel san francisco los angeles oslo stockholm uh, to name four of them so the the problem they've got is that they can't pipe or distribute to aircraft sustainable fuels in the same network as conventional kerosene so much like electric cars it, it might be the ideology to go for that form of propulsion, but the infrastructure to power the electric cars just isn't there, the grid and distribution. And they're gonna find the same sort of problems with sustainable fuels. Uh, How do they refine it? How do they uh, blend it? How do they ship it to airports? This is all infrastructure problems that the sort of green ideology doesn't really take into consideration. Uh, the uh, future for aviation seems quite important, as I say, to a country like the United Kingdom or anywhere where you have to make long journeys. Uh, if you were to make a prediction, do you think that we will get to a sustainable aviation environment or do you think politicians will just settle down and go, OK, we don't actually really need to do this because there isn't a climate emergency? Um, I think it's a very good question. Um, I, th- I think that the the climate emergency uh, will be n- never forgotten about. And I think that they will, lo- like the uh, biomass power stations in the UK, behind the scenes, we don't know where they get their biomass from uh, to create their energy. But on the surface, everyone will be led to believe 
that the power station is renewable and environmentally friendly. It will be the same with aviation fuel. It's not like passenger cars where the fuel is regulated, the emissions outputs of the cars must be homologated. Who really knows where the fuel will come from, what net effect it was on the environment to create it, and if thousands of feet up in the sky, what the emissions output of those aeroplanes is different to what it was if it would have been on kerosene. Uh, so there's a big question mark about the whole thing in the first place, which brings us back to where we started. How green is bio <laughs> biofuel in the first place? That'll be my homework for this afternoon. Thank you. That's Michael Beek, uh, pilot and um, transport expert. How do you feel about this? Do you think that maybe there is a situation where it just makes sense to use biofuels? Because even if there isn't a climate emergency, we should make the most of the oil that we have or do you think that this is all ridiculous uh, unaffordable and just part of a great fraud uh, which would i suggest be the claim that human beings are wrecking the climate you let me know on uh, uh, tntradio.live you find the chat there i'll get some of your calls and comments in in a moment uh, coming up next we're going to stay on the ba basically the same theme and speak to a senior former activist from friends of the earth which is an environmental uh, movement uh, he's in prague brian moore let's see what he has to say about this subject that's all with me lembotopic here on tnt radio this news just in tnt radio news ready go go matt boyland here with a look at your tnt headlines the extended pause in fighting continues to hold in Gaza, though Israel has vowed to resume its bombardment of the besieged territory once the truce ends. Palestinian prisoners released from Israel as part of the deal have described harrowing tales of torture and abuse while in detention. And there have been remarkable scenes in India where all 41 miners who have spent the past 17 days trapped under a collapsed mountain have been rescued. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. Lemidopic here uh, till the top of the hour. We were talking about the NHS before. Louise says the last place I'd be going is to the doctors. It's literally the last resort. Mazzy adds, what about GPs that shout at you, Lembit, or a senior clinical doctor in gastrointestinal clinic prescribing you penicillin when you're severely allergic? When I made a complaint, they blamed me. They blamed me. Disgusting for 2015. And... Uh, uh, Seb Dangerfield says, in my long experience, GP receptionists are among the most hateful people on earth. Everyone, every one of them seems to have learned at the nurse ratchet school of psych <laughs> psychopathy. Uh, nurse ratchet, uh, who of course featured in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, keep your calls and comments coming there. Uh, Chuet forty seven says, if they cared so much about uh, so um, about the so called climate emergency, they wouldn't be sending planes up to poison us with chemtrails. That's another subject. And stunt monkey adds, all based on the rubbish argument that zero point zero four percent of CO two is bad. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Let's find out from a former uh, friends of the earth activist uh, who is in Prague at the moment. It's Brian Moore. Brian, good morning to you. Well, good morning, Lembit. From a very cold Prague, I will say. Um, but directly behind me, I'm, I'm actually in the, um, if you've been to Prague, I'm in the old town square. They're putting up the Christmas tree behind us, ready for next week's um, Christmas fest festivities here. So, so you, what was your job? What did you do in Friends of the Earth? 
Well, I was chairman of Tyneside Friends of the Earth, um, and it's what brought me into po politics, and it's how, how I met you. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Uh, but uh, that's not the only positive, I'm sure, Brian. <laughs> so the question for me is, do you blame the snow behind you on climate change, or is it just a normal winter in Prague? Well, actually, this is probably the first snow they've had, because I'm look looking at a little wood directly behind um, the camera, and there's still leaves on the tree trees. This is nearly in December. So, you know, normally you would expect Prague to be by minus cold. Um, today probably is their first cold day. And <clears throat> it's not rocket science. When we, um, when the coal and oil reserves were laid, all those millions of years ago, the climate was a lot hot hotter. So if you put the carbon back in, we won't all die. That's true. But the world will get warmer and probably a lot less comfortable for humans well okay so let's look at uh, what uh, what stunt monkey says that 0.04 percent of the atmosphere which is the co2 content can't be making that much difference and the three and a half percent of the carbon budget that human beings contribute isn't even measurable well yeah in okay we've got switzerland nearby just a bit north really or wherever um <clears throat> And the glaciers are in re retreat. Um, recently, I was in the Himalayas. The glaciers are in retreat. Um, in Iceland, you got pictures of from 1927 of glaciers on land, but they're gone now. Um, Antarctica, which is not that a million miles from Australia, another another big iceberg. And when they when an iceberg we're talk, talking the size of Wales breaks away, what's causing this lembit? You know. Um, well, you know, um, first, go on. Well, first of all, um, there's dispute about how much the temperatures are actually changing, and that we could go into the medieval warm period and all that. But I've got a more yeah. fundamental question for you, Brian. You, I guess you you would support those who say we shouldn't fly. How did you get to Prague? Did you walk? The irony's not lost, by the way. The irony <laughs> it, the, the plane would have been coming here anyway. Uh, what a well, yes, but it's full of full of infidels like me who don't think that we should stop flying. You're by inference saying that we should cut down uh, non-essential uh, CO2 emissions. You don't have to be in Prague. And this is the problem. Even if you were right, it's hard for people to take it seriously when we're being preached to by people who fly around the world. You just listed all the places you've been. You didn't have to go to those places. No, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, this time last year, I was literally um, two kilometres above sea level, looking at the um, Himalayas. This, you still, you can't stop your life. What you can try and do is mitigate your effect that you have on planet. So yeah, I actually do take more holidays in the UK now, so I can eat fish and chips. <laughs> Only somewhere between five and eleven percent of the human race has ever flown. So. You're in the one in nine or one in 10 group who's actually ever flown. How do you justify that to all those who haven't and should say, well, Brian Moore's allowed to fly, so am I? That is an absolutely good point. But what I would say, Lembert, um, is what is worrying was when I first used to go to Beijing just over 10 years ago, we had Terminal 1. They've now got 
Terminal 2 for the Olympics. They're doing Terminal 3. Um, if you look at um, Dubai, which a lot of Australians would have flown back to UK and backwards, Terminal 1, Terminal 2, Terminal 3, um, it's almost like we're having an exponential increase in flights. And, yeah, it, you, you've raised a good point, but I do believe, right, that you can mitigate um, the effects you have on the globe. But, Brian, the, the thing is, right, in order to give everyone else the same privilege that you give yourself, you would need to have 10 times more airports. So it would have to increase exponentially. Otherwise, you're saying, I, as one of the great middle-class wealthy people in a first-world country, I can fly, I can preach from Prague, but nine-tenths of the human race has to stay on the ground or more just because yeah, that, 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 I that choose probably to live a different right. I... Yeah, but, 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 does, but does life improve with coming to Prague? I don't know. Does life improve flying from Heathrow to Sydney? I don't know. But what I do know is if the if the rest of the 90% of the population start flying right we will we will have a serious breakdown in climate and what and what and what climate activists are i'm not i'm not going to word use the word preaching is slowing down the rate of climate change we're you know, going and, and, you... and pardon finish your point I missed finish that your one. point finish right, your and point. and that's and I think it, it's it's, it is about slowing down the effects of humanity on the planet. And, yeah, we really should have a debate about how cheap flying has, has now become. You know, I, the last time I flew from Delhi to the UK, £500, right? The last time I got a train from Newcastle to London, it was £250. It's madness. From Delhi to the UK. I mean, you're an international jet setter, Brian, and a former chair of Friends of the Earth in the north of England. I would love to have you on again to talk about why you think there's a climate emergency. If you're willing to take that on, we could we could really have some useful uh, debate about that and why you think CO2 is, is the culprit and human-generated CO2. Are you willing to take that challenge, Brian Moore? I am, but on one condition. I'm not. I'm standing, free, freezing to cold <laughs> in the middle of Prague. <laughs> <laughs> I blame climate change, Brian. It's a deal. When you get back from Prague, if you can spare some time for TNT Radio between your international jet-setting life, it will be a pleasure to have that debate. And the target will be to work out if CO2 is the killer gas or not, Brian. I still mean this. Enjoy your holiday. With some humility, I hope, and a big dose of humble pie. <laughs> that is yeah. pie and more. Go on. Okay, okay. Thanks, Lembit. It's great to see you, Brian. That is Brian Moore. Fair play to him. He came on. Uh, he's got his views, uh, admits that there's a certain contradiction in him flying and others not being able to. Uh, uh, Monkey adds, UK produces 1% of the 3%. Man-made CO2 is part of the 0.04% in total in the atmosphere. So photosynthesis, look it up, no plants, we all die. 
And Ivan says, iceberg breaking off has happened for the big from the beginning of time. Lots more calls and comments there. Uh, I certainly respect uh, Brian. He'll come on and he'll put his case. I'll put the contrary view and let you make the decision. That won't happen today, of course. But coming up next, uh, we have somebody who does great good in the world. Uh, I think you'll agree when you hear Daniel Welsh in a moment. Uh, He's going to discuss the work of the charity Harvest for Hope. Now, that is a charity in the UK, but I think what they do is an allegory for what these kinds of charities do all over the world. They had a big meeting last week. Uh, This is the first chance we've had her on since then. We'll find out what she was doing last week, what Harvest for Hope does, and the relationship between charity and faith. All of that with me, Len Topic, here on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I've been in and around politics for over 50 years, so it takes a lot to surprise me, much less shock me. But I was shocked, shocked, not that so many Argentines voted for Javier Malay, but that the Peronist powers that be allowed him to win the election. And the thing that made me the happiest for my Argentine friends is the video that Malay put out where he went down the row of a magnetic board that had all the Argentine government ministries listed and all the irrelevant ones. He pulled them off the magnetic board over his shoulder. They're gone. No more. That's exactly what we need to have happen here in the United States. We need Donald Trump back in January of 2025 to streamline our government. We need to move the Department of the Interior actually out into the interior. We need to move the Department of Agriculture to where we commit agriculture. And most importantly, we need to defund and disband FBI and distribute its law enforcement functions to other agencies that have their own law enforcement capability already stood up. We can't have Donald Trump back fast enough. I'm glad that Malay is going to make Argentina great again. We need Donald Trump here to make America great again. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Meet Norm. He lives with anxiety. But with the help of this latest innovation from Be Normal, he can be normal. Just like everyone else. With the swipe of a finger, you can project happiness, confidence, machismo. Why settle for being real when you can be normal? The Normal Maker. New from Be Normal. This item doesn't really work because there's no such thing as normal. We're all different. What we like, how our brains work. In fact, one in five of us live with mental illness. Don't filter who you are. Start by talking to someone you trust. And remember, there is no normal. Lembit Opic on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Well, it looks like our friend from Friends of the Earth, uh, Brian Moore, has stirred up quite a debate in the chat. If you want to get involved, go to tntradio.live. Dud says, apparently, when Romans were here in the UK, it was warm enough in Scotland to grow grapes. I think that's true, Dud, actually. Uh, Just a bloke says, commercial greenhouses use... Uh, between 800 to 1,000 parts per million to increase their yield. Uh, But we are led to believe that 400 parts per million of CO2 is too high. Clown world. You're, of course, completely right about that. Uh, And uh, Red says, Mammy, climate change is yet another obvious hoax. And Dodd suggests that the bloke I had on air there has an agenda. Yes, but he sort of admitted it as well. He admitted the contradiction of flying around the world, which he seemed to be quite pleased about uh, at the time, same time as saying that nine-tenths of the world shouldn't start flying could it correct the planet. We'll get Brian Moore back. Uh, I've been looking for the chance to have that debate. Uh, lots more comments uh, uh, coming uh, up there. Spirogyro says, I haven't flown anywhere since the year 2000. Well, fair play to you. Uh, you've done a lot better than Brian Moore, the former Friends of the, world, the Earth uh, 
chair in the north of England. Let's go to something which should give you hope. And it's about Harvest for Hope, which is a charity based in London, uh, but with, with outreach work in many different places. Daniel Welsh joins us now from that. Good uh, morning to you, Daniel. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm very lovely to talk to you. Uh, let's start with what this charity is. What does Harvest for Hope do? And what was the meeting that you had last week? The Harvest for Hope um, is a project actually of a larger charity called Oasis that works across the UK. And we set Harvest for Hope up as a sort of local initiative in the middle of London, in Waterloo, um, initially to respond to the refugee crisis um, in Europe. So we actually began in 2015 um, collecting goods and um, clothing and things like that to send to refugee camps in Greece. But um, over time, we wanted to do something a little different. And so we decided to um, go into the community sponsorship scheme, which is something that the government ran um, to be able to provide a home for refugees um, in this country. Um, so we got a group of investors together, bought a house. It's a long story. This is a short version um, and welcomed a family into the local community. Um, and the last five years really has been the journey for us of um, getting to know that family, of learning from them and of um, kind of exploring what a local community can do um, in terms of making a difference. Um, so, and last week our meeting was our actually our annual general meeting of investors and shareholders um, to talk really about the future of the family. They've been um, with us for five years. So we were talking a little bit about um, what the future looks like, how long investors wanted to stay involved in the project and um, things like that. So uh, you took the step of actually getting a house in order to help migrants. Yeah. What was the community reaction to that? Was there negativity or did people welcome these individuals? No, no it's been a really, really positive story, to be honest. We um, wanted to do something, when you invest in a property, you're actually gonna get your money back um, at some point when we choose to sell. So it was something that I think there are 25 or 30 shareholders who were able to take part. So it was something that people couldn't have done on their own, but they could do if we got together as a community. Um, it's been a really positive experience. We run um, 54 academies around the country and um, we have a local academy um, in London where the family are based. So we were also able to welcome the two children um, into our schools and we've obviously been part of their journey. Um, the oldest child arrived in year nine, unable to speak any English, just got their A-levels this summer, um, did really, really well, got A-star and have started at their uh, university of choice um, doing a physics degree. Um, so no, I think for the community, it was a really positive story of um, being a part of a family's life, not just for a one-off thing or a short time, but really investing in them um, and in their um, growth and their journey. I, I wanna talk about why a church should be doing this in a moment, but first of all, in terms of these uh, shareholders, these shareholders collectively bought the house yeah. what's in it for them is it just altruism or do they get a return um i think it's motivated by altruism these people that really wanted to do something tangible um had the means um to do that we have investors who put in anything from a couple of thousand pounds to tens of thousands of pounds and they range in age from people in their 20s through to people in retirement so um, it was driven by altruism. Any anything that you give, you could have used that money in some other way for yourself, and they've chosen to invest that money instead to make this happen. 
Um, but it is an investment. So at some point we will um, decide whether we want to sell the property, whether we want to go again, whether we want to convert it into a more commercial renting situation. So at the moment, the investors don't get anything back, but their money is safely invested in the property. Um, and so they'll get the return on that at some point. Uh, just out of interest, have they made a notional return? Uh, have Have they invested wisely? Um, I think so. It's a little bit hard to tell at the moment. Um, market um, Property markets are a little bit um, on the way down, possibly. But I think, again, we've tried to structure it so that if people need to get out and get their money back, that we can bring other investors in to replace that so that we're able to, if we do sell the property, we're able to do it at the right time when we can ensure that investors at the very least get their money back and hopefully get some return on it as well. I don't think anyone went in thinking that they were guaranteed a return or looking at that as their motive, but we would like to sort of honour their commitment to the project. So that's developing, um, that's quite a developing situation in terms of the investment model. Let's get now down to the reason this story caught my eye, Danielle. It's a church-based organization. You're in the property market. I see that the Oasis, the parent foundation, which I guess is faith-based, has got literally thousands of staff. Why would a church do all that when surely it's just meant to open on Sundays and save some souls? (laughs) I think this is exactly what churches and other faith groups should be doing and actually are doing in massive numbers around the country. we need to be invested in changing our communities. Oasis works in um, areas of the country where there's significant levels of deprivation, um, a lack of opportunity, and we're really there to change that. So I think it's um, we are a faith-based charity, so I think often it is faith that motivates that, but I think that faith is really supposed to do good in the world, to impact our communities. And in fact, that's something that we've lost maybe a little bit of, in our sort of understanding of uh, the social contract, the role that community groups of all kinds, faith and other kinds, the role of volunteers in our communities. Actually, government can't do everything. And what we need is to create neighbourhoods where people are known, where they belong, where they actually can thrive. And we need each other for that. I think we saw that in the COVID pandemic. Um, We saw a sort of surge really in this idea of neighbourliness. Um, and that's something we really believe in as Oasis. We're about building stronger community. And we think most of that actually comes down to people and relationships as much as it does to programs and services and mm-hmm. things that we can run. So now I think if you look back to the original foundation of the welfare state, it was always intended as part of a social contract not to do everything, but for the role of faith and other community groups to be a part of that contract with government. Uh, there would be those who say that you've stepped into a breach left by government because they actually should be doing this. They should be running schools so that you don't have to run academies. They should be housing people in need or migrants because uh, that's the, the right thing to do. How would you respond to those who say that you're actually letting the government off the hook? I don't think we are. I think we push all of the time for government to be Um, investing in local communities. We run 54 academy schools that were funded by the Department for Education. I think that's what I mean about partnership. Um, We have something to bring to the table. 
um, the government needs to do their part as well. So no, I don't think we are letting the government off the hook. We're constantly in conversation with local authorities and with central government about massive gaps in provision, about investment that's needed into communities. So the government needs to do its part, but I think there is a role for um, for faith groups and for civil society to play as well. Uh, how about the concern some may have that you're peddling your religious stuff at taxpayers' expense in 54 schools? Our schools aren't um, faith-based in the um, sense that you don't have to belong to a religion um, to join our schools. So we have completely open um, entrance criteria. So, you know, what you would expect from any local school, siblings looked after children and distance from the school. Um, so we um, we work by um, having a set of ethos values um, and also sort of behaviours and character formation for children. So that um, isn't pushing any particular religion. We're a very diverse um, organisation across the country. Um, we are motivated by our Christian story and our Christian roots, um, but we are um, one of our sort of highest values really is inclusion um, and the welcome and belonging of everybody in that story. Uh, do you, therefore, just one other question about the, the dynamic here. Do you not have, if you like, a, a religious responsibility to evangelise according to what the the Bible says? So, in a sense, if you're not at least subliminally supporting faith, then you're not true to the evangelical creed. Um, I think, um, so speaking personally, I think um, the Bible talks about the transformation um, of the world, and that's what we're about. We're about the transformation of ourselves as individuals and our local communities. Um, we, we think that that is... Uh, the living out of the Christian faith in our communities. So we do run a few churches around the country. So, um, you know, that part of the work that we do, um, but really those are um, about being there for our communities, making a difference, bringing hope um, and bringing a welcome for all. Everybody is welcome and included. And uh, with Harvest for Hope, what would success look like if in 10 years time we're having this conversation? What would you be able like to say in 2033 you did in the intervening decade? A really interesting question. I think obviously for the individual family that we're helping in South London, um, for, for us that's about their journey um, to growth and success and to uh, a fulfilling life, which they are very, very much already accessing. Um, I suppose in the bigger picture, I think this is a model, um, not just for um, something like the community sponsorship programme, but you know there is a massive housing need in our communities. Um, and I think this is um, something that groups in communities could do in terms of social investment. There are big organisations out there that are working through social investment to look at um, bringing properties um, into particularly the rental market at prices that people can afford that are closer to for example, the local housing allowance, the most private renting is. So I think there is something here um, that could be done much more widely. And I think that's, um, I think it's empowering for local communities that we don't have to kind of sit and think there's nothing that we can do. 
Um, we might be doing it on a small scale, um, but there is something we can do in our communities to address some really big social needs like housing. Daniel Welsh, thanks so much for joining us. That's Daniel Welsh from uh, the charity Harvest for Hope. And with that, uh, I'm out of time. Just want to read you one message from Madrid. Sorry, Len, but shouldn't be giving people like that uh, that green uh, airtime on the subject. We know it's a hoax. But the point is, Madrid, in a free country, you give this plat platform for to even to people who you don't agree with. I would like to have him back because I really want to have a go with, at him about carbon dioxide. Thank you all for listening. Uh, the debate continues. Uh, stay with TNTRadio.live. You'll be able to get involved in the chat. You'll find the phone numbers as well uh, on our site. Uh, I'll be back again tomorrow. I hope you found what we've been discussing interesting. And tell me, if you think the biofuels make sense, you can also send me an email on that. Really enjoyed being with you today. I'll see you tomorrow on TNT Radio.